0: So, the quick reminder here is last week we started a series on a topic, a series that we are calling The Bible and Sex. So so let me do a couple of reminders, and I won't do this every week, but I felt like the first couple I needed to um, as we do it. Uh, this is the second teaching, and these teachings build off of each other. And so if you come into this and you're like, I'm not quite sure what, he's, what he means by that or how this is going, that might mean be because we talked about it the week before. So be mindful um, of that. And then if you'd like to, you know, please feel free to go back. I'm going to do a quick little summary of it, but it's not the same as going back and actually hearing what it is. All of it should be online at cgnortheast.com, by the way. Um, And so just as we approach this topic, I want to remind you of the atmosphere that we want to have in here. The four kind of things that I approached this topic with personally was that I wanted to make sure that I did this with sensitivity with vulnerability as in I, I will share things I think are appropriate so it, there is no superhero up on this stage or in this pulpit that you know that this is something we are all walking through trying to figure out together um, with courage and with compassion, alright? And so there's a couple of assumptions I made going in, uh, going forward that I'll, I'll reassert today. Um, if you're here, you're an adult or you're an ad, or, or an adult in this room has approved of you being here, all right? That's the first assumption. So just kind of know that, that if you're in here and you're like, oh, my kids shouldn't be here in here for that, um, I don't know, find a way to sneak out real quick out the back door uh, and get them into children's ministry so we can um, work with them in there. The, the, the other thing is um, that, that you are okay with the nature of the conversation and emotionally capable of having it right now, which may be a seasonal thing, by the way. And so it's not my, my desire to, to trigger trauma in your history if you have sexual trauma or something in your past that, that you struggle with, um, but if something, like that happens, uh, feel free to just step out in the lobby, take a minute, say, uh, I just need to kind of think this through on my own without, uh, in not in a public setting. The second assumption is that this sanctuary, we hope that this sanctuary and everyone in here as an audience would embrace an overall tone of safety, an overall tone of of empathy, and while I might challenge you, um, uh, you know, kind of no matter where you're at on this topic, I'm not trying to ostracize anyone. You are welcome in our church as you are, you are welcome in this conversation And we love you even if we disagree on different parts of this. Um, Today I also want to remind you that the second, uh, oh, that's just the same thing. Second reminder, we're building on the foundation. Sorry, I just copied and pasted certain sections from my last sermon into this intro. All right, let me do the summary. Main idea last week is that we're walking into this conversation with history, right? Right? There is uh, possible baggage, background, good and bad things of experiences that you've had maybe with sexuality. There's voices speaking into your sexuality, right? And that could be from the culture, that could be from uh, a church that you grew up in, uh, that could be uh, just your inundation in a sexualized culture like America in the West, right? And so a framework for how you view sexuality has been formed inside of your mind in, and you have been discipled to some extent by some things, some sort of... Um, uh, I want to use entity like it's that abstract, but but through the media, through books that you've done, through school, all of these different things have had to have um, have had a voice in that conversation. And so we wanted to stop and just think through that. What has shaped my view? Where, why do I believe that? And where did that come from? Maybe where did that teaching come from? Or where did that idea come into my mind about sexuality? What posture is your heart as you go into this? Are you open to hearing that God has something to say in this? The call was for us ultimately to trust God enough to lay down our frameworks because they're all broken. And to submit ourselves to God, but also to understand that in submitting to God in that way, we are also inviting him to lay down and to submit any shame that we might have from our past any brokenness that needs to be um, brought to wholeness, any uh, incorrection that we think God might want to help correct inside of our hearts and our minds. And so I want to ask that same invitation. Now moving forward, I'm going to highlight, it's kind of part two of last week where we looked at a broader sense of history and, and, not history, but a broader sense of sexual ethics and what the, I don't know, the elasticity for God is in this. It's pretty big. There's nothing you're going to bring to the table that's going to scare him. Um, But as we read the scriptures, there's some pretty explicit and even um, as we see in it wicked things, some darkness, right, as we see uh, inside of um, uh, Genesis um, 38. Uh, go back and read that again if you don't end up saying what the heck just happened after you're done reading that. You read it wrong, right? So go back if you're, if you're interested and you haven't checked it out. Moving forward, we're going to zero in on a more current framework, two of them that we operate today, one from the church context and a second one from the Mar- American Western cultural context, all right? And then we'll, we'll move forward from there by laying out a quick foundation. So let me read to you from this. Ephesians 5, this isn't going to be up there, just listen. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3. It says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper to God for God's Holy people. Now, this verse from the Bible and the phrase specifically, not even a hint, became the theme and title of a book by an author named Joshua Harris. It's his second book, and one that somebody handed me when I first entered into um, kind of a youth space or into a church. Again, if, if you're new here, I didn't grow up in church. I came in from the outside and had kind of a different experience, but this is one of the first books they give me. I'm, I'm jumping in. I'm starting to like hang out with the youth ministry. I'm also going to camps, um, and then I remember this, like, uh, it's a light blue book. I remember because I'm like, I don't, I, I don't know. I was in high school. I don't read things, right? Like, it wasn't really my thing. So they, they hand me this book, um, and so the youth pastor said, Hey, check this out. I think it'd be helpful for you. Of course, the first book that Joshua Harris put out was called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Anyone hear of it? (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, it sold millions of copies, and while it may not have ushered in what would be considered the purity movement, it certainly is kind of the linchpin, the the operational, um, I don't know, text of the moment in the 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, It's kind of the archetype literature of that moment. Harris uh, and purity culture pitted this way of engaging relationships and marriage uh, as what they said was like a more responsible, wiser, holier um, way than uh, the idea of dating. And so he said, exchange dating for courtship, all right? Now, I'm going to give you a quick little concise definition um, from a, uh, an author named Dr. Julie Slattery. Uh, and she's, she's commenting, giving a definition of, of purity culture. Sex matters, this is her definition of it, keep, keep that in mind. So in the purity culture, sex matters because it is an important moral category to God, and if you want to please God, you will stay sexually pure until you get married, and if you obey that command, most likely God is going to bring a wonderful spouse to you. You can have shame-free sex, and you can enjoy the great gift. this great gift within the parameters of marriage. One of the worst things you can do is sin sexually. God hates sexual sin even more than he hates every other sin. Does that kind of summarize a little bit of that, of that network, right? Of the, uh, or sorry, of, the, of that cultural kind of narrative. The purity framework built the idea that a person's identity and their all, all of their entire standing before God was dependent upon this one thing. Sexual choices and their ability to remain sexually pure. And then on the other hand, for those who successfully abided by these rules, it comes with a lot of lofty promises. If you do it our way, you will find the perfect spouse, you will have a long, faithful, sexually satisfying marriage. Now, the problem with that is that while many happy marriages were made during that time, right, it's not, it's not like, as I, as I kind of throw some critiques at this, it's not like there was no good fruit from this moment, but the promise didn't always match up with reality, right? I'm kind of expecting an amen right there because I know we're feeling this one, <laughs> right? I've had conversations with people, I get it. Uh, and, and honestly, it's probably like cliche to, to critique this right now. So, uh, the, the, you know, Enneagram 5 in me, or 4 in me, whichever one doesn't like to be, you know, likes to be unique, doesn't, does, you know, wants to run away from these sometimes. But it, let's, let's say, let's call these what they are. Um, and, and so this is what happened. Uh, it turns out, telling young people no and putting horrific situations in front of them involving sex creates anxiety, stress, and emotional trauma that doesn't just go away the moment you say, I do. It turns out that depicting sex before marriage as the ultimate sin from which no one can return invites shame that invades the heart. It settles in, it moves in, and stays with you for years to come. You feel like damaged goods. It turns out that maybe you did everything just like you were supposed to do. You even gave up up dating for courtship, but there was abuse later on. Present, And in your attempt to stay pure, maybe even a church leader, the one who taught you this, was the one who was the abuser. It turns out that you did everything right, or you did, and now you're so afraid of sex, you can't even bring yourself to do it, even after, as a married adult. Or you played with all the right rules, like, I did all of the right things, got the ring, and all the different, you know, read all five, 10 books that were out there, and a few years into your marriage, one spouse cheats on the other. My point is this, it didn't always work out the way it was promised. And what happens on the other side is it can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance, disappointment, pain, and trauma that then you attach to God, right? Now, this framework had intentions of adhering to biblical understanding of sex, Um, but it was incomplete, and it put too much weight on this one thing, right? Right? And so what we have to do is be willing to admit that the church is, uh, uh, that even all of its good intentions, that it has become, it, it built its own framework that wasn't necessarily biblical, but took a mixture of cultural things and the Bible, its own 21st century broken, flawed version of sexual ethics, and that it put it up on a pedestal as if it was purely biblical alone. And so even, so, so, so we have to be we have to be able to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, maybe that didn't work out the way that we thought it, it was supposed to. Joshua Harris um, eventually came forward and renounced his book, recognizing the damage it caused, and issued apologies, multiple apologies for that. Now, he's also gone kind of in a, in a direction that, that I, don't, I don't even think he, belie- he, he identifies as a Christian anymore. His marriage has ended in divorce. Um, and, and I don't say that to like... I don't want to punish him for that. I just think, like, like the, if there was ever a way for us to say, wow, that did the one championing these rules, who made them, followed them, also it didn't work for that person as well. Okay, that's one dominant m- message. That's one dominant narrative that we've heard. Um, the other one that I think ends up getting pitted for us, and, and maybe uh, as, as, we have, um, as we kind of interact with that, I want you to kind of find, look for yourself in these narratives. Find out where you believe you kind of have your... Um, uh, your, your, your discipleship history in. And so maybe that's familiar to you, but this primary mode of discipleship that lasted probably the large part of most of the church, I won't say all sections of the church, um, but for most of the church, it happened for about two or three decades, maybe even more. Um, and so it's likely that if you're in this room, you have had some contact, you've taught it, I've taught it, Right? As a youth pastor, not only did I kind of come into the church during it, but, but I also was somebody who taught some of these things. So it's like we're pitted between that and this other discipleship from the Western American culture. Uh, it mixes this intoxicating cocktail, and I'm going to define these in a little bit, but hear me out. Philosoph- philosophical humanism, all right? I'll define that in a second, and Western individualism. That's what I think the two main kind of ideas or values behind the cultural narrative is based on. So humanism is this. A philosophy of life that without theism or supernatural beliefs, so there's no supernatural anything including God, affirms our ability and reason and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to greater good. That's the American Humanist Society. If you go to their website, there's like eight different definitions. I think they're trying to get different perspectives in there. But it's our job as humans to define these things and, and, and it's not just, uh, it is our responsibility, not just a right of ours. And so the, the good of human, based on human understanding, um, that's the, uh, the American humanist say, and Western individualism. So philosophical humanism, Western individualism. Lots of isms this morning, I, I'm sorry about that. Western individualism stresses the need of the individual over the needs of a group or a whole and prizes self-sufficiency, independence, Uniqueness, autonomy. And we've talked about this here at Common Ground a good bit. All right, so you mix those two things together, and then you build a sexual ethic out of that. Uh, And I'm going to quote again from Julie Slattery, um, how the cultural framework and sexuality plays out uh, with this quote here. It says, uh, well, actually, let me say this. But ultimately, I think the purity framework as well embraces those two things. I'll tell you what I mean in just a second. We just dressed it up in church clothes, uh, and then we could pour some legalism over it, all right? So I'll tell you what I mean in just a second, but this is the, the cultural framework. It's to focus uh, the focus that the most important thing in life is self actualization in all areas. Right? Uh, if you want to be happy, and if you want the people around you to be happy, then you have to go. Then you have to give them the freedom to look inward, to discover who they are, and to have the ability to walk out and live out their authentic self. Sexuality matters because it's such a central part of their identity. And if you can't be authentic to who you are sexually, then you, can be, you can't be a fulfilled and happy person. Then she draws one more conclusion. She says, so we define sexual morality as basically consent. As long as it's two consenting adults, you're good and really giving people license and freedom to act out anything on their true self. All right, now Sidery builds out a cultural framework based on those two things even more. She kind of adds to these, trying to help play out the, 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 um, the results of this. So sexuality comes, has come to represent much of what it means to be human. Therefore, sexual expression and fulfillment are hallmarks of maturity. All right, that was definitely one of the frameworks I, that was built into my life. Like when you're mature enough to handle this. This is why educators, counselors, and even ministers encourage freedom of all sexual expression as long as you're not hurting anyone. You should explore your fantasies, your desires. According to the cultural narrative, this is a crucial part of finding your true self, all right? Anything, including God, who hinders your sexual expression and fulfillment is morally wrong because they are keeping you from happiness. Now, go back to the two things I named earlier, philosophical humanism um, and individualism, completely removed from any um, co- com- communal consequences, I'll say. Alright, does that kind of make sense? You can kind of see how those two things built itself out into this. And this is, I w- what I would say is the idolatry of our day-to-day, right? But, but here's the kicker, and this is where I was talking about earlier. As I was taking all this information in, it hit me that the purity culture is actually a mixture of this exact same thing, but it, p- it was put in the hands of patriarchal leadership And then sprinkled a little bit of God's word on top of it to justify it. Alright? So so hear me out. Now, and I'm going to (laughs) say, this one's going to be difficult. If you grew up in church, this one's going to be difficult. But but hear me out. Alright? Walk with me to the end of it. The church has had sexual idols built into our own Christian framework. And it was created to lend grace to certain sexual sins. Those who were in power while pointing fingers at the ones they didn't. I'll give you one example. I can justify a pornography situation as long as I can point at somebody else dealing with something worse in the culture's mind, right? I mean, it's not that big that I'm doing this. I mean, it's not like, I mean, I didn't sleep with the person, right? And we can kind of, oh, I guess that's not that big a deal. But you can also then, especially, well, it, I, I can't go too much on that, but you kind of get the point. If I point at someone else's sin, it makes mine not such a big deal, all right? So I believe the purity frame framework disproportionately emphasized gaining and protecting one group's sexual freedom, including their sins, at the expense of others. And now I'm going to give you a bunch of examples. This is why the weight of keeping your virginity and responsibility of not going, quote, not going all the way was mostly placed on women while we normalized boys will be boys. All right? You see how that happens? This is why we've stockpiled our grace and given a pass to many divorces that don't qualify according to the details of Scripture because all of a sudden we in the Christian church started to deal with that. This is why we uphold or even idolize marriage and the nuclear family itself as central to human living, minimizing and even marginalizing single people even though the Scripture states very clearly it's better not to be married. Well, if most of us are married, we're going to go pretty easy on the marriage stuff, right? Right? And you can just kind of see how this works itself out. A bunch of dudes sitting around a table in a boardroom saying, well, we can't just have people walking around burning with passion, right? Well, let's, give, let's, let's, let's really normalize this at the expense of maybe others. This is why, here's another scenario, we look at our church systems, our authority structures, and see pretty much the same level of patriarchal abuse that we see outside of the church. And all the ladies said, Amen. But when we look at life, the life that Jesus led, what we see him is over and over again defending women, freeing women, lifting women up into positions of authority. This is why, here's another one, we see the needle move on what was considered appropriate levels of pornography to the point that it's just normalized and the idea is we're probably looking at it rather than not. And there was a time 20 years ago when someone sat me down and said there's two ways to get fired inside of ministry uh, some sort of business misappropriation you steal from the church or sexual misconduct any listed pornography cheating um, you know some sort of uh, affair something like that nowadays even inside of the church even as a pastor uh, I think it would just be mostly given a pass like let's get him in therapy let's do all the things that look good up front right but for the most part, the idea is that you probably are, uh, and, and honestly, let's just like kind of keep it under control, right? Now, now this is, um, this is what I want us to see. Uh, ultimately, what we're doing is picking and choosing based on, a, and I would say not accidentally, but on a high level of consistency, we're giving a pass to the sins of those who are on the inside making the decisions, all right? Biblical boundaries are defined not based on the Bible, but based on the ones of the things that people are struggling with inside of that culture who are making that, which is humanism and individualism. All right? I'm going to kind of keep going on this just a little bit. Uh, w- ones we emphasize and de-emphasize tend to be the ones that protect ourselves. So now at this point, what I, what I kind of, you know, I want, to, I want to kind of paint this picture to the extent, I, I think most people in here, I mean, you, you were probably in one of those categories. I've probably stepped on most people's toes in this room, right? And, and, and I ask you, you know, as we consider this, and, you, and if you're mad, you can beat me up in the parking lot later, um, but I think this needs to be exposed. And just talked about and brought out into the open. So hear me, I don't mean to take this information and now, like, let's go back a couple 20 years and ratchet up all the legalism and start punishing people for things. I mean to point this out so that we understand that when any group has a sin and the right majority power, they can build a framework to make it look like whatever they want and say, my sins aren't that big a deal, your sins are. And it works over and over. So instead of trying to honor God in all that we do, with all of our bodies and everything that happens with mutual respect, with mutual understanding that we all have struggles, those in the majority power found ways to just kind of socially accommodate the things that they have struggled with. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. Humans aren't pulling humans out of that. Humanism is not going to work. And I want you to see that it actually was embraced by our formal culture as it was trying to kind of find a way to get around it, not even realizing that it was caught up in these things. And so the church, and I'm going to go a little more specific, because in the past few years, right, it was mostly male leadership in there. So the church and male leadership in particular has yet again embraced the sexual ethic of our day framed it in a way that looked biblical, and if we don't reckon with this, we have an outstanding separation from God personally, we have zero integrity, zero credibility to speak into anyone else's situation, and when we come to untangle this mess, it's like we feel hopeless. Where do we even go from here? Even my attempt to make this right ended up being bad. And so you can kind of just like throw up your hands, I don't even know anymore, like just Like, do whatever you want. I I just can't, I don't have any clue what to do at this point. And so as a church, we have lacked courage to confront ourselves, to be held accountable to things, to receive grace in our own sinful tendencies. Listen, grace is a gift to us, but we have to be willing to go towards God in repentance to receive it. Right? So if we're not willing to deal with this sin, we no longer have authority and we walk in sin ourselves. The Bible says this to those who are in that situation, take the plank out of your own eye. Okay, um, this is what I want us to do for just a few minutes. Um, and this is kind of like a last minute. I just thought, hey, this, this might be what needs to happen here. And I felt pretty confirmed that the Holy Spirit was saying do this. Um, I think we in this room need to take some time and repent. And so, and so this is what this is going to look like. I'm not going to ask you to come out and start saying all of your dirty laundry and shout things out. This is what we're going to do. I, I, um, I am going to ask you all to stand up with me, and we are going to do a call and response, and I am going to repent in the first person on behalf of the church. And what I want your response, because I don't know if you're out there as the perpetrator or the victim in any given situation I'm about to read. You might need to say, God, give me grace in this situation to cover my sin, or you might need, you might need to say, God, I need healing in this area right now. I actually was the victim of somebody who did that, and I don't know where you're at. And so as we do this, I'm going to ask you to pray the prayer of Kyrie Eleison, which is simply this, Lord, have mercy, and receive that in the way that it means the most to you, all right? I'm going to read them out, and I'm going to take it just kind of, I don't know why, but as I started writing this, I imagined myself sitting on my knees in front of us when it happened, and you all sitting. So that's what I'm going to ask you all to do. Could you stand up? I don't mean to be dramatic with this, but I do feel like there was a sense of obedience that God was saying, I need you to do this. So I'm going to read these, and your response is, Lord, have mercy. Can you say it with me once? Lord, have mercy. You're all so good with this? So let me just open with prayer, and then I'll begin with these repentance statements. father thank you so much that we have the gift of grace and that gives us a way out of so many things that our pride would say don't do it that our hearts would say we can't handle this that our minds would run from and just say hey if i can just stop thinking about that it'll go away no lord we get to come before you be bold with it and know that it is covered on the other side and so for those here who have maybe been victims of any of the things I'm saying here today, God, would you grant healing, and 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 Lord, would you uh, allow mending to take place? But Father, on the other side, for those of us who maybe had a hand in being the uh, the aggressor or a uh, uh, some someone who is a perpetrator in any one of these, Lord, I ask Lord that you would grant them forgiveness and a movement towards maybe maybe dealing with that in a real tangible way. So here we go. I repent that a disproportionate amount of responsibility while seeking purity culture landed on women. Lord, have mercy. I repent that much of the church culture gave grace to sexual sins that were closest to ourselves and singled out the sexual sins of others to justify it. I repent that we made an idol of marriage and the nuclear family and minimize or even marginalized single people inside of our churches Lord, i repent that our church systems and authority structures in the church have housed misogyny and even protected patriarchal abuse lord have mercy lord i pray that these things would be handed over to you I pray in ways that we have marginalized people, you would give us ways to make that right. Father, help us to just wash away these frameworks clean and start fresh with you. Speak to us today, Lord, and we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, My hope... uh, And and keep in mind, this was as many of these things that I could think of. There may be more that needs to be repented of, and more, um, more, more that needs to be received. This is just a beginning, Um, and so I would I would uh, urge you to continue that work of healing in your life, and I'll give you one way to do it at the end today. Um, It's easy to stop because we're paralyzed. What do we do next? I mean, I, I mean, how do we move forward? How how do we go from this, and and I want to share with you two things that drive me to be hopeful and that that drive me to continue moving forward. One factor is that I think we sit at a higher level of awareness in our history and a better vantage point of the mistakes we've made, all right? That might be naive, and I'm sure every generation thought it, but I'm kind of standing on that. And so what God, when we move forward, we're going to try to kind of do this with an idea that God can still make things right and still bring healing. And so a conviction of that drives me to engage this topic as well as this. Sexuality is a part of the Christian discipleship, uh, and we don't have permission just to, like, walk away from it. Likewise, if we are ashamed of this topic, we are no different than Adam and Eve in the garden hiding behind thin veils of leaves. As God is saying, where are you? Where are you? The second thing is sexism is a powerful force in our culture. Uh, our culture is well-versed in using it in all things to sell as many things as they can to us to get us to buy into stuff. Right? It's a sexually charged culture. We can't escape it. And so we can't just hand this over to the culture to say, this is your job. Now you take this on uh, and, and leave God out of it. We don't get to avoid this topic for that reason as well so I want to give us a little bit of a starting point. It's just, a, 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 I would say, an introduction. I'll try to give, um, but uh, today what I want to do is just kind of uh, give us a new starting point. And this is what I don't want to do. I don't want to give you a new framework to look at. I also don't want to give you a list of do's and don'ts, right? I'm not going to hand you an outline, a systematic theology of what you should have believed in purity culture and any other culture. And now this is the right one, right? Can you see how ridiculous that would be? So what I want to do is to give us a a, a set of tools or guidelines, and then the work of building your new framework is actually between you and Jesus. So I want you to see that the Bible tells this story of sexuality from the beginning all the way to the end. From the front to the back all the way through. And that the gospel itself, the redeeming, the redeeming story of the gospel itself is intentionally, intricately, and inseparably woven into that story. Dennis Hollinger is one of the text, a book called The Meaning of Sex That i'll borrow from throughout today Uh, uh, he writes this he says when we come to the gift of sex we recognize it has the potential for so much goodness but in its fallen state so much abuse it is in light of this reality that we must probe the ends of our purposes of the gift of physical intimacy understanding these ends or purposes enables us to capture god's intentions from creation but such understanding is also essential to guard against the abuses and unethical practices that tempt us in a fallen, sex-crazed world. And so in the story of sexuality, having an idea of where we're going, right, is really helpful. Having an idea of some plotting points along the way are really helpful. And so I want us to look at the story of sexuality inside of the Scripture. I'm going to give you one of those four kind of ideas today. We'll get to the other three next week because we needed so much setup in this one. And what I want you to do is since we don't have all of the details of how to work out a purely biblical Framework of sexuality in the 21st century, it doesn't just give us all of that information. We have to build it out of that. And so as we saw last week, there are hundreds of reasons we could name of why people have sex. There's all kinds of reasons. But I want to um, submit to you that there are four biblical reasons that God has told us by which we are supposed to have sex. And those become plotting points and and a direction for us to build on. And so I want to set us on that trajectory today. Um, I want you to understand uh, that, that the hope in the end is that it has the ability to revolutionize your ideas of sexuality, to bring healing to those things, and to maybe redeem some failures uh, that have haunted you from your past. So four purposes. Um, you know, there's two ways to do this. Build the suspense and give them to you one at a time. But I, I want to be clear rather than suspenseful in this moment. I'm going to tell you right now what those four things are. You ready? If you're a note taker, this is like, yes, then I can just kind of go on autopilot. All right? The first one is illustration. I'll tell you what that means along the way. The second one is procreation. The third one is love, which wraps up in it intimacy and some other things, um, but I'll, I'll give definitions for that along the way too. And the, the fourth one is pleasure. All right? Illustration, procreation, love or intimacy and pleasure all right we're going to open our bibles to genesis chapter 2 verse 18 through 25 genesis 2 18 to 25 one of the most defining moments in the bible for sex is in the context of a union that we now call marriage it wasn't called that then but we now call marriage and it appears in genesis 2 after God has created a bunch of things, set this rhythm. He makes it. It's good. Makes this. It's good. Makes this. It's good. And then God does this in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is what? Oh, not good. Did I just trick you all? Yes. That rarely happens, even up there. It is not good for the man to be alone. Okay, that should stick out. There's a highlight there, right? Good, good, good. Whoa, not good. And, and then it says this, I will make, I'm going to use the Hebrew term, an ezer kenegdo for him. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see that he would name, what he would name them, and whatever man called each living creature, that was its name. All right, he's more uh, creative apparently than I am. It would have been like big thing and bigger big thing and smaller thing over here. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the animals, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no, is there. it's actually Ezer kenegdo. it reverses here, was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, the reason I used the Hebrew in areas where I did was because I don't think the actual phrase used here is, um, is complete, I guess. It's, it's not quite there. So in the English, it says suitable helper, all right, or, or a helper suitable for the man, right? And so let's break this down. I want to give you a, a bit of the fullness of what I think the writer was wanting to mean by this and using this phrase in Hebrew, ezer konegdo, or konegdo ezer. Two words, right? The ezer, translated as helper in this, is defined as the one who assists or supplies strength in an area that is lacking in the one being helped. One commentary said the ezer adds to what is incomplete in some way and it enhances or improves it to make it complete. The same word is used later on to describe God as the rescuer of Israel and Hosea. So the term doesn't initially imply that Azer is either stronger or weaker than the one helped, but maybe in a position of strength to help. The Ezer is described then as konegdo, as a suitable helper, right? Suitable for the person. So this word is konegdo itself is a two-word combination, right? Kai or ki, which means as, like, or similar. And catch this, neged, which means opposite of or even against. So if you caught what I just said, eh, kinegdo means same, different. In our Western sensibilities, that's like silly, right? There's a, there's a contradiction there. But keep in mind, Hebrew people were much better at using these terms to create a juxtaposition as opposed uh, to something that means something different. So, neged, which means opposite or even against, is two combined words, meaning, meaning or, or attempting to capture the creation's similarity to Adam and the, the, the creation's difference to Adam. So, she is a human, but she is also worthy as a counterpart to Adam. The mate was found to be fit for him or perfectly matching him, but not the same as him, like puzzle pieces, right? It's very cute. That should go on a Hallmark card, right? In the Hebrew Roots movement, they say that it means the perfect enemy, which sounds kind of negative at first. What it means is you are so open, you are so vulnerable to the woman that she could destroy you easily if she wanted. Perfect trust in this relationship perfect exposure, that you are so intimately close, if you wanted to, you are the perfect enemy to this person, right? Can you see how they're kind of using that play on words? So as the narrative begins, it says that Adam was no suitable helper for, for Adam there was no suitable helper, but God provides the man with one who is like him, but yet not like him, to be his perfect matching counterpart, We'll have a chance to look um, later on in two weeks, actually, about modern gender theories. Um, but I'm going to go with what's, what's assumed in here, right? So, so if, you, if you don't catch what I mean, gender norms, how those come about, fluidity, et cetera, if you know some of those terms. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But right now, what we have in the, in the Garden of Eden, we know at least in this initial relationship, Genesis describes two as having a binary biological sex, all right? That's not the act of sex. That's like what, what you are, male or female, right? So the biological binary of sex being male and female is assumed at this point right so this is the second description in genesis it's actually a a um it gives us more information based off of something earlier that was said in genesis 1 starting in 26 i don't think this is up there but you can hear it from me Uh, then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all of the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's all we get in that first description. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So at this point, there are a few things that have been built into the definition of marriage that is accompanied by a sexual relationship. And in its original context in Eden, there is a sexual union that involves one, thats singular, male, and one, that's also singular, female. And that multiplication or procreation is an assumed byproduct. And there's a couple more things though, that I want us to see. And so that, that's where we're, we're kind of starting with this beginning of what these, these um, purposes of sex are. So Genesis 2, verse 23, going back into where we left off, it says this. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt, no what? All right, just making sure you're listening. Now, I don't know if Adam was a good poet or if he got lucky in this moment, but when you start to think of the fullness of the metaphor that he's using, or the description, I should say, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is beautiful language and it's meant to convey this powerful and unique level of intimacy that we would call love. And there's three words in Hebrew for that love. I don't have time to go into those today, but what I want you to see is we have one for their three. So there's got to be more than just our one version of that. But we have this intimacy here. A physical manifestation of equality is built into it because she was taken out of his side. A description of the type of commitment that happens in this union. The man leaves his father and mother to be united to his wife and becomes one flesh. There's a change in social, communal identity and familial allegiances built into this. Now, um, Bollinger uh, has two comments on this that I thought were important. Instead of just saying it my way, I'm going to read them to you. Um, Here we go. Essentially, the text sets out three elements of marriage. A change of status, a unique commitment and a sexual union of the two, all right? Those three things are kind of described in just those few verses I read. This change of status is a universal reality throughout most history and cultures, all right? It works itself out different with a lot of different variations, but marriage brings a change in a way that the couple relates to parents and each other in a different way than they did before, changes the way the community relates to them as well, all right? We kind of there, we see that? The second component of marriage is that there's a paradigm of commitment in here. That you would be united to your wife. A better translation might be, and sticks to his wife. In many cultures, this commitment has involved not just the couple, but parents and extended family. Right? That's very foreign in our individualist culture. Just as Israel is frequently called to stick to Yahweh, God, So the married couple is to commit to one another in such a way that there is a permanence to their relationship. This commitment would be later described as a covenant, all right? Which is why I used the word covenant last week. As God formed a binding agreement with his people and the people with him, so marriage is that kind of commitment. What I want you to see is the seed of illustration that I described being planted right here. Now, I want to quote one more time from Julie Slattery, uh, and then we'll make some conclusions, and I think get you out of here in time for lunch. Our sexuality, including its place within marriage, is a profound physical picture of this great spiritual truth. One pastor wrote, when God made man, then woman, and then brought them together in a relationship called marriage, he wasn't simply rolling the dice or drawing straws or flipping a coin. He was painting a picture His intent from the start was to illustrate his love for his people, for God created the marriage relationship to point to a greater reality from the moment marriage was instituted. God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. And that's true, as we went through the Gospel story over a long bit of time, we realized that all of the things creation had in it were built to represent. They were a shadow of something that was casting the shadow. They were a reflection of something that was giving us that reflection. Even the stars and planets in the sky were meant to tell us things about the Scripture, or sorry, about God and His character, so too the illustration of sex. But the question is, what is that illustration? You're going to have to come back in the next couple weeks to hear that. What I hope to put in front of you today is just this introduction. I want you to remember these four purposes, all right? Illustration, procreation, love or intimacy, and pleasure. I'm going to visit these back in the next couple of weeks, and I want to build them out a little bit more as we go, and they're going to carry on all the way to Revelation. Right? They're, they're not just talked about here and drop, they are carried through the Old Testament, they are carried on into Jesus, they are carried into the writings of Paul and, and literally all the way into Revelation. And this is what I want you to do with this stuff, with this information. Here's the processing part of it. I want you to ask yourself these questions. Go back to the first part of this sermon. What damage has my previous framework caused myself or others? Alright, sit with that for just a second. What damage has my previous framework caused, myself or others? Do I need to seek forgiveness from someone? Do I need to receive healing for something in my life? And, and, I, and I will say this, God, I feel like God kept pro- prodding me on this. Um, we also probably need to give maybe some grace to the previous generations of churches. I am not making a pass for any abuse you may have incurred during that time but I just started thinking that was a group of people just like the people we read about last week in Genesis 38 just like us imperfect trying to make sense of this thing and so there's a part of me it was like okay before you get too angry back off a little bit they were doing the best that they could with what they had and I felt like there was a point where I had to stop and say okay I forgive you and I'm going to have some compassion on you all as well all right any of those things might need to happen in your heart today With the information I presented about Genesis, where do I agree and where do I disagree? Do I have purposes of sex that I would add to this or would I remove any of these four things away from that, right? I don't don't expect everyone in here is going to agree with me. But ask the question, process it a little bit. And then next, where does the culture agree or disagree with the purposes of sex, right? Do they agree with these four things? What would they remove or add into it? And just process those things. Essentially, where do you find yourself in this story, right? We ask our children this every week of every story. Where do you find yourself inside of the story that we read? And just like last week, I want you to invite God into this conversation. Allow him to reveal, to revolutionize, to heal, or to mend. All right? This is our first plotting point. All right? Everyone good? Again, if you're mad at me, find me in the parking lot. I'll let you just take shots. Like, just have at it. It'll it'll be a fun time for everyone. Um, If you have questions, write us. Um, uh, uh, office at cgnortheast.com. I'll be receiving those there. We'll try to like combine ones that are the same, right, so we're not answering or or asking the same questions over and over. Um, But my hope here as we leave is that we would walk together after this, uh, this counter story to both the culture and the purity narrative that we've been told and that we could emerge with God involved in it as hopeful, healthy, mended, mending intentional people. And my prayer today is that you would find yourself in this story. Receive the fullness of what God has for you in grace for yourself and grace for others. Let me pray. And Lord, we thank you so much for uh, your word. And, and, and even that's not complicated. We have a diversity of ideas in this room of what that is, Lord. But, but God, I want us to trust it. Let, let's allow that to, um, Lord, open our hearts, our minds. Give us hands that are not clenched fists, but able to receive from you anything that we need, God. And I do pray that entanglements of pain, baggage, would be untangled and lifted off. That, that trauma or healing or wounds would be healed, God. That those who have maybe been walking in guilt for things they've done would shed that guilt, Lord. But also that there are healthy marriages in this room that even in the midst of the framework have somehow kept it together and have been a bit of a good illustration that many people have needed to see, God, would you turn the heat up on those things? Bring us out of darkness and into light, Lord, and build us well. We love you, Jesus. May we represent you well in all that we do. And may we have courage and conviction to do everything you ask us to do in this time. We ask for this right now in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.